Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts be good and pleasing in your sight this day. In your holy name we pray, amen. One of the first times that I read this scripture, I remember laughing out loud when I felt was the silliness of it. The pure absurdity of Jesus being forced into this ridiculous situation where he must decide the fate of a woman supposedly caught in adultery, determining if she would live or die, and Jesus' response was to doodle in the dirt. I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is snarky Jesus coming out to play again. I love snarky Jesus. But no, I don't think this was snarky Jesus. What I think is happening in this text is a really profound moment in Jesus' ministry and an incredibly relevant message for us today, a message of accountability, accountability and of love. This text is located in a very intense moment in the Gospel of John. Jesus had been going around causing all kinds of trouble, making friends with Samaritan women a big no-no, healing on the Sabbath another big no-no, and giving away free food to 5,000 people, all things that sent the Pharisees and the powerful temple leaders into an outrage. Jesus was coming into conflict and was getting loud with his teachings and preaching in the name of the one who sent him. He knew that he was stirring something up, and he meant to. He was challenging the authority that sought to put him to death and proclaiming a new way of living. And this story in particular, though many scholars believe that it was inserted later and not originally a part of the Gospel of John, because of its style and likeness to the Gospels of Luke, Mark, and Matthew, its theology was so in line with Jesus' teachings that it fit perfectly into this space. In this story, the temple leaders are trying to trick Jesus, to find a way to justify arresting and killing him. So they bring before Jesus a woman who was allegedly caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, I have my suspicions about that. Firstly, where's the man? The law in Deuteronomy says that both the man and the woman are supposed to be stoned in this situation, so but oh, only the woman is brought before Jesus. And when the Pharisees demand that Jesus speak on this matter and decide if the woman should live or be killed, Jesus starts doodling in the dirt. I wonder what he wrote. We'll never know. But it's such an odd response. And yet, when they persist and they keep pestering him, all he says is, let the, first, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Of course, none are without sin. And so one by one, they all leave, leaving Jesus and the woman alone. And for the first time in the story, the woman is acknowledged and spoken to. 
Jesus, is, Jesus recognizes that no one has chosen to cast a stone at her, and he tells her to go forward and sin no more. Jesus sees the Pharisees trying to exercise their oppressive power over this woman, and he's having none of it. He instead turns the whole situation around, where shame and the law were being weaponized as a means to condemn, pushing God's love further away from this woman. Jesus showed that the law was a tool of grace and love and not one of condemnation. He held the systems of power accountable and replaced them with love. To some, reading this scripture might seem far off from anything that we might experience now, but I, I think to believe so would be a mistake. In mid-June, a popular Christian singer released a song called Modest is Hottest, <laughs> a song that sparked a great deal of controversy. In the song, the singer is singing to his two young daughters, telling them to cover themselves up, wear turtlenecks and a good pair of slacks because that's what the, because the boys are coming around now and that's really what they want. He tells them to aim for more of an Amish look and less Cardi B. And God forbid he ever catches them dancing on TikTok because modest is hottest and it's the latest fashion trend. Critics of this song said that it was just another round of purity culture condemning women's rights to wear whatever they want, whatever made them feel comfortable, and refusing to acknowledge the toxic and harmful culture that perpetuated violence against women. The singer got so much backlash, whew, so much backlash from his song that he removed it from YouTube three days after he had released it. And he insisted that he was making fun of overprotective fathers like himself and that the song's meaning was taken out of context. I do believe that the singer didn't mean for his song to have such a negative impact, but what I think he failed to realize when he released this song was that modest or not, he was perpetuating a cultural norm that women's bodies are not their own, and that any way they dress is meant for the male gaze. The song centered men's desires and ignored women's agency, an act that indeed pushes God's love further away instead of drawing it closer. After reading about this song, and all the chaos in pop culture religious news that ensued, it made me reflect on my own brush with purity culture when I was younger. In high school, I attended a girls-only conference that my home congregation was hosting in our huge gymnasium. There were about 150 girls in attendance, and I remember there were guest speakers, fun activities, Bible studies, but I don't remember any of the details of this conference except for one thing. Sometime in the middle of the day, they had all the girls at the conference gather together and sit down in a huge circle on the gymnasium floor. The MC, not, who was not from my church, held a microphone in one hand and a small, beautiful gift in her other hand. 
It fit in her palm and the fluorescent lights of the gym reflected off the shiny silver paper and the sparkly ribbon that was neatly tied around it. She passed the gift to the girl sitting on her left and instructed her to open the gift. The girl tore into the present like any kid would and found a delicate flower inside. She examined the flower, smelled it, thought it was pretty, and then put it back in the box. And the speaker told the girl to wrap the box back up the best that she could with the paper and the ribbon that had originally wrapped the box. And then she handed the box to the next girl and told her to open and rewrap the gift just like the first girl had. All 150 of us girls opened the gift, turned the wilty flower in our hands, and tried our best to wrap the box back up. By the time the gift got to the last girl, it was a mess. The paper was shredded, the ribbon was full of knots and had broken into pieces, the box was pretty squashed, and the flower was just a pile of petals. It was not as exciting watching that last girl open the gift that so many other girls had opened. The speaker told us that this box was like our sexuality, our bodies, if we chose to have sex before marriage. That the more we gave our gift away, the less desirable it would be to our future husbands. I, I personally find that funny. Um, in fact, our husbands, if we found them in the future, would be incredibly disappointed, disgusted even, by the time we gave this gift to them. And I'm sure that the speaker tried to justify this, saying that it was good to keep this gift for special people, to cherish it, and so on. But all I walked away from that conference was with the understanding that my body was not mine. My sexuality was not mine. I did not have the responsibility to love, care for, and cherish my body. It belonged to someone else. else. And my worth was determined by how desirable I was. And I felt so far from God's love. I think that's one of the most memorable moments where I came up against a major system of oppression, a system of power that tried to tell me what my worth was based on what others said. I know there are many people who experience much harsher examples much earlier in life, but what I experienced was an oppressive system that used shame to control, and it has horrific consequences for the vulnerable. The woman in this story, who was caught in adultery, for example, she had a near-death experience. Her life was merely a prop, a tool for the powerful to get what they wanted without concern for what actually happened to her. And I wonder what Jesus would have said if he was sitting in that circle of girls passing the gift. Would he have said anything, or would he have just been doodling in a sketchbook? We live with these kinds of systems every day, systems of racism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, the, the list goes on and on. 
And we can be so entrenched in them that we don't even realize that we are carrying these biases, these remnants of oppressive ideology within us. What Jesus does in this story when he comes face to face with an oppressive system can help us to dream. Show us how to ask the question, what if? What if we, like Jesus, refused to participate in oppressive systems, instead doodled in the dirt, disengaged in conversations that refuse to acknowledge the basic humanity of another person, refusing to push another person away further from the love of God. When the Pharisees asked Jesus to decide the fate of the woman, he answered at great risk to himself. When the Pharisees were using the law as a weapon against him and against this vulnerable woman, Jesus instead transformed it into a mirror, a mirror that reflected back at them their own imperfection and their own shortcomings and made them face mercy. I've often heard the law of Moses referred to as a mirror in which we see our own imperfection, and that is why we need God, because we make mistakes all the time. And we need that kind of overwhelming grace that God offers. But whenever I think of the law as a mirror, I can't, can't help but remember my college years. I had an RA, the person who's in charge of all the people living on her floor, uh, who wrote cute little notes in the bathroom mirrors and dry erase marker every day. Notes that said things like, you are beautiful, you are amazing, you're doing great, stay strong, have courage. She knew that when we looked in the mirror, we saw imperfection, so she offered a break to that learned behavior that internalized shame and oppression, she invited us to see a different narrative, that we didn't have to participate in that system of destruction and self-hate, that we could look in the mirror and see our perfections, yes, of course, but also see that we are loved and we have value. I think that is exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus, who refuses to participate in these systems of condemnation and death, invites everyone, the Pharisees, the woman, us, into a new reality, one where there is grace, where there is mercy, and we are reminded that we are showered in love and forgiveness every day, always. And when the Pharisees saw that, they could not do anything but extend that mercy and kindness to the woman. When we saw, when we see how loved we are, when we see our own value, and we hold accountable and refuse to participate in harmful systems, we are invited to share that love and to build something amazing, to build a world full of forgiveness and kindness a world where instead of being pushed away from God's love, we are drawn in and embraced 
for all of who we are. What might that world look like? What kind of transformation could happen if we let go of those harmful things in favor of loving, in favor of kindness? Would everyone be able to love who they loved without being shamed? Would all people be able to dress and express themselves fully without being rejected? Would we care for one another in mind, body, and spirit the best way possible? God invites us to do more than just dream. God invites us to act, to love, to hold systems of shame and oppression to a holy accountability and replace them with kindness, acquittal, and love. So let us act now and bring about the new life that Christ invites us to. Amen.